your Bible, I invite you to open it to John 18. We're going to be looking at John 18, verse 28, and following the story all the way to John 19, verse 16. If you want to grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you should find that on page 767. So John 18, starting in verse 27 or 28. Let's hope I do better with the sermon than I did with the announcements. I hate mornings. But I have to say that this was a beautiful one. The city was still quiet. The sunrise was glowing soft through the palace window. I was just about getting ready to tuck into a good breakfast when my day took an unexpected turn. Some Jews arrived, important Jews in fact, the high priest himself with his top officials. They'd come to see my boss, Pontius Pilate. Now Pilate, he despised the Jews, but he had to play nice with them, with their leaders at least. He needed these Jewish leaders to help him run Palestine, to, to help keep the fragile peace and to uphold Roman interests in that part of the world. But that didn't keep Pilate from antagonizing them whenever he thought he could get away with it. This morning was a case in point. Just the day before, they had presented their case to him about a troublemaker called Jesus of Nazareth. He was a threat to Roman interests. They said just the Sunday before he had evidently entered Jerusalem as if he were a king and many were supporting him and who knows but that he would lead a revolution next. Now a man in Pilate's position couldn't take such accusations lightly, especially at Passover time when revolution was already in the air and and the crowds in Jerusalem swelled and hatred for Rome ran high. So Pilate had granted the high priests a detachment of soldiers to arrest this Jesus. I hadn't gone with them. This particular mission was too minor to involve me. But I had heard that it had gone well, and these Jews had got their man, who knows, but that they had been up all night interrogating him. Now here they were dragging him to us at the crack of dawn. In true pious fashion, they refused to enter Pilate's palace the usual scruples about them being too pure to set foot in a Roman building and honoring the commands of their God, blah, blah, blah. This made Pilate annoyed with them all over again. I suspect he was also having second thoughts about this case. There was a certain vagueness to their accusations against Jesus, and and something didn't make sense. After all, Jesus' accusers were, were Jews. Why were they all of a sudden so eager to uphold and protect Roman interests? What was their angle? What was in it for them? Well, Pilate was a Roman, and an upholder of justice, and he was in charge around here. They weren't going to push him into being their errand boy to accomplish their agenda. So he went out to them, but instead of receiving Jesus, he played dumb. What charges are you bringing against this man? Sure enough, that got the Jews mad all over again. If he were not a criminal, they shot back, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. After yesterday's favorable hearing, they had hoped this would be case closed, but now they were back to square one, and they were frustrated. Pilate took the opportunity to get further under their skin. Take them yourself and judge them by your own law, he taunted. 
This made them even more furious. Did he have to rub their noses in the fact that they needed him? That only Rome had the authority to execute anyone? Of course, it wasn't uncommon for a Jewish mob to occasionally stone one of their own. Rome, you know, we Romans often overlooked such things. But why did they have to insist on a state trial, a, a state execution by crucifixion? These questions had bothered me at the time, but, but later when I came to know and to believe in this Jesus myself, I made a point to find out. I found out two things. First, first one had to do with, with Jewish law, Jewish beliefs. In, in their book of Deuteronomy, it states, Cursed is anyone who's hung on a pole. Ah, to be crucified is to be cursed. And if this Jesus was cursed in this way, that would prove that he was really nobody. That he wasn't any sort of Messiah king, that he was just a common criminal indeed. But there was a second reason too. And that had nothing to do with the Jewish leaders actually. Rather, it had to do with a, a deeper purpose, a divine purpose. From heaven's perspective, this Jesus was not destined to die low, buried and crushed under a pile of stones in a back alley in Jerusalem somewhere. No, he was destined to be lifted up high for all the world to see. He'd said so himself, I found out later. He'd said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so he did. He drew me. But back to my story, because none of us could see that at the time. All we saw was this poor, weak, despised Jew, a mouse caught between two playful cats. Well, because the Jewish leaders insisted, Pilate agreed to formally hear their case. So he left them outside, he went into his judgment hall, and he had this Jesus brought before him to question him. He looked Jesus over. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked incredulously, can you picture it? The mighty Pilate flanked by his guards enthroned in his mighty hall of Roman justice looking down at this nobody tired and bruised and bound. And they said he was a danger, a kingly pretender. Ha! Nobody dare call themselves king unless Caesar appointed him on pain of death. Well, Jesus' reply, it was puzzling and unnerving. He said, is this your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Was Jesus joking? Or was he so naive to think Pilate might be interested in stepping down to recognize a Jewish king? Pilate didn't know whether to laugh or to rage. Am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus continued, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, don't you think my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders? But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Pilate wasn't sure what Jesus was talking about, but he'd gotten the part about being a king. Pilate understood power. Jesus continued, yes, as you say, I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Yes, he's a king. 
but he's come to testify to the truth. His kingdom is from another place. Who is this Jesus? What kind of king is he claiming to be? Certainly not the kind Pilate and we knew well. This Jesus, whatever he was, was no real king. No threat to Roman interests. Perhaps a Jewish guru. Perhaps a cynic philosopher wandering the streets, pondering truth, saying as philosophers were fond of saying in those days, it is those who know the truth who truly reign. Maybe any of those, but no king. Yet, not just a guru, not just a philosopher. No, this man talked differently. He told Pilate, the most powerful man in Palestine, the man deciding his fate, everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. How could this be? What could he mean? No man ever spoke like this man speaks. For a moment, I wondered who it was who was really on trial. Well, Pilate shook his head and rose. What is truth? He called over his shoulder as he headed for the front entrance. He was ready to issue his verdict to those waiting outside. Here it was. I find no basis for a charge against this man. There it was, case closed. Jesus was innocent. But Pilate had a way of making things more complicated than they needed to be. Oh, overthinking things, trying too hard. It had gotten him into trouble many times, truth be told. In this case, maybe he was trying to give the Jewish leaders a way to save face. Or maybe he was trying to score points with the gathering crowd. Whatever the reason, he added, it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? What the crowd called back shocked us all and threw an unexpected wrench into the chariot wheels. It was going to be a long morning. The Jews said, no, not him. Don't release him. Release to us Barabbas, the revolutionary, instead. Ah, the terrible irony. The shocking contradiction. Pilate took a moment to take it in. On the one hand, they want Jesus executed because they claim he's a revolutionary. On the other, the man they want released instead really is a notorious revolutionary. You figure it out. It made no sense. Something else was going on here. Something deeper. Something I feared much more sinister. Pilate was dumbfounded. He didn't know what to say. He had gravely miscalculated and he didn't know why. Pilate had never been a great intellectual. Power was what he understood. Force of arms. And when things got confusing, he defaulted to violence. So he ordered us to flog Jesus. To punish him. Maybe that would assuage Jesus' accusers. Maybe they would be satisfied then when they saw blood, that justice had been served, that he had dealt with the situation. The soldiers decided to have some fun with it, to dress Jesus up as a mock king. They pressed a crown of thorns on his head. They put an old purple robe over his shoulders. Hail, king of the Jews, they said as they struck him. It felt good, good to vent some of their hostility, their frustration toward these Jews. So that's what Jesus looked like when, when Pilate presented him to the crowd again, like a poor, pitiful, 
mock king. I don't know if Pilate thought that would demonstrate to the Jewish accusers once and for all that Jesus really was no king, that he was harmless, that he was no threat like they claimed. But regardless, this new plan to release Jesus badly backfired again. Here's the man, Pilate said. Here indeed, we looked at him. A king, bruised, beaten, bleeding, weak, pitiful. He's no king. But all this did was make the Jewish priests all the more adamant. Crucify him, they shouted. Crucify him. These underlings were getting pushy. So again, Pilate threw Roman power, our sole right to execute capital punishment, into their faces. You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Well, the Jewish accusers realized this wasn't working. They realized they, they couldn't make the accusation that Jesus was a rebel king to stick. Jesus wasn't kingly enough. He wasn't violent or powerful enough. So they played their other card, which of course we all were coming to suspect was the real reason they wanted Jesus dead. Not because he was a political threat, but because he was a religious threat. But none of us realized just how deep this threat was until that moment. We have a law, they said, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Blasphemy. Not only did Jesus pretend to be some sort of king, but he had blasphemed against their God, they said. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Pilate was a superstitious man. Like all good Romans, he believed in the gods. And he believed in divine men, men with special powers who were perhaps the offspring of the gods. He had, or had he, just ordered such a man to be beaten and mocked? What would this man do to him? Would he, would he haunt his dreams? Did he have magical powers? Or would the gods be displeased? What had he gotten himself into? Where do you come from? Pilate demanded. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate asked. Pilate was getting more unnerved by the minute. This was not turning out to be his day. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Now Jesus answered. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. I was standing there. I heard it. I had to rub my eyes. I somehow wondered who was actually interrogating who. Who was this Jesus? So calm, so steady, so unimpressed by Roman power, so direct and commanding. But Pilate didn't get any of it. He, he didn't get it. But one thing he knew, whoever Jesus was, he was no revolutionary, no threat to Roman power. The priests wanted Jesus dead for their own personal reasons. That was clear now, and Pilate would be no part of it. But the chief priests actually had one final card to play, and now was their time to play it. They knew Pilate's weakness, and they had no choice but to exploit it. They reminded Pilate of what Caesar would think of a governor who acquitted someone who made noises of being a king. 
You see, Pilate worked for Tiberius Caesar, a very insecure man, a paranoid man, in fact. A man who could not tolerate any other king who might threaten his reign. And Pilate was already on thin ice with Tiberius, politically speaking. And he knew it. One more complaint and he could be recalled to some inglorious desk job in Rome. Or worse, he could find his head on the Roman chopping block. Pilate couldn't risk it. The chief priests and their cronies had won. So Pilate sat down to deliver the verdict. The best he could do now was get in a dig here or there to try to salvage his self-respect. Here is your king, Pilate mocked the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate toyed. This was fun. Fun enough that Pilate was caught off guard by what they said next. We all were. We couldn't believe our ears. We have no king, the chief priest answered, but Caesar. The message was clear. We honor Caesar, don't you? If you don't crucify this guy, Caesar's going to hear about it. But the irony, these priests had just sold out in the process. They had just blasphemed. These Jews who were accusing Jesus of blasphemy had just disowned their God and claimed Caesar as their only king. And with that, Pilate sentenced Jesus to be crucified. So what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of this whole story? Why is it in our Bible? Is it just to give us the historical facts of how Jesus wound up getting crucified? I think you, I hope you sensed as we pondered this story together that, that it's getting at something much deeper than that. Today on Palm Sunday, as we celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey amidst waving palm branches and hallelujahs, we're celebrating the coming of a king. But not your average king, rather a king who comes to reign in a particular way, a, a unique way. As the prophet Zechariah put it in the prophecy that's picked up by the gospel writers and applied to Jesus on this occasion, this king comes humble, riding on a donkey. Jesus is a king who comes to reign in a humble, lowly way. And if you know anything about John's gospel, then then you know how much Jesus stresses love and, and servanthood. Jesus is a king who, who washes feet like a servant. He, he's a king who comes to love the whole world. And he tells his followers that no servant is greater than his master. If this is how your king expresses his kingship, then how much more should we love and serve others in humility? But what does that look like? What does it look like for a king to reign in a humble and in a loving way? We need to know because we're getting to know this king. We're, we've been invited into his reign to participate in his kingdom. And we're supposed to be following and imitating his example. Like King Jesus, we're now, if our faith is in Jesus, we're, we're sons and daughters of God. And so we're called and we're invited to reign with and like God's son as God's children. So what does this look like? How does one reign in humility and love? Well, this story gives us some answers. 
because today's story stresses and highlights that Jesus is a king, but, but not like any king we've ever known. And so in this story, we see three things which help to answer our question here. We see the prerequisite of reigning in love and humility. We see the pattern of how that reign takes place or how, how to reign in this way. And finally, we see the effect, the result that this reign has. So first, we see the prerequisite to reigning in humility and love, and that is an absence of fear, an absence of fear. We can't reign in love and humility unless we get a handle on our fear. In this story, Jesus doesn't come across as afraid, does he? He doesn't cower before Pilate. He, everyone is screaming. They're dealing and they're jockeying around him. They're, they're worried about their pride and their honor and their careers and, and their futures. And Jesus just kind of stands there firm and quiet and resolute. How? Answer, because Jesus trusts the Father. Jesus trusts his heavenly Father. Jesus knows that nothing can happen to him outside of the good plan of his father. And so Jesus seeks to please his father above all. And, and if, if the father allows it, then it must somehow be ultimately for the best. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of peace, that kind of confidence? To, to go to work, to go to school, to look in the mirror, to, to deal with the tough people in your life and to not be afraid. You can. Get to know the Father whom Jesus knows. Learn to trust the will of the Father like Jesus trusts. Let God's strong presence and will replace your fear with his peace. You can't reign in love and humility any other way. Second, then, the pattern of love and humility. And there's a lot we could say about this. But let me just point out one aspect which jumps out from this story. And that is that Jesus doesn't defend himself, does he? When he speaks up, it's, it's not to save his own skin. It's, it's only to testify to the truth. It isn't that Jesus says nothing. It's just that when, when he chooses what to say and, and what not to say, it isn't about what benefits himself. It's rather about pointing to himself as the one who came to save the world and to show them what God is like, to show us what God is like. Now, Jesus is a bit of a special case here, right? I mean, Jesus knew that he had to die, and so defending himself would have undermined the very reason he came. In a court of law, in, in our case, if, if we were being accused unjustly of a crime that we didn't commit, there would be nothing wrong with us mounting the best defense we could to prove our innocence. But nevertheless, there's, there's a principle here for us to take to heart as we seek to reign with Christ in humility and love each day. And let me explain. Do you remember several years ago when I invited you to take the tongue assignment? It was right before VBS week a few years ago. That's when you, um, you try to go for a whole week without criticizing anybody or talking behind their backs, without bragging or boasting, and without defending yourself. 
not defending yourself. That's the hardest part, right? <laughs> but why even stick that in there? Why not defend yourself? Well, as someone who's done the tongue assignment a number of times, I, I think I've begun to figure it out. It's because when we're busy defending ourselves, we are not loving other people. Maybe you know a, a touchy person who, who you can't bring up with them anything that they've done wrong without them getting all defensive about it. Well, we're all that person sometimes, aren't we? For example, if my wife says to me, you're late for dinner, and I start in about how I couldn't help it, how this happened and then that happened, and I had six phone calls on my way out the door, I'm busy defending myself, and, and in the process, I'm not paying attention at all to Anne's concerns, which had I listened, I might find out were that I inconvenienced her and threw off the family schedule or that she was worried if I was okay or that this is the third time this week that I was late for dinner. But I'm so busy defending myself, I'm not listening to her. I'm not loving her and I'm certainly not being humble. Rather, I'm preoccupied with myself, I, I, trying to prove that I'm better than what she says I am. I'm not someone who's late with no good reason. I, I'm better than that. And of course, my reasons for being late are more important than her reasons for wanting to have me home, right? <laughs> Can you see the subtle selfishness there? That's very different from reigning in love and in humility. If I'm humble, I, I don't need to, to feel justified inside. I don't need to be right. I, I can admit that I messed up. I, I'm okay with, with being wrong because I know at a deep level, God still loves me. I, I'm still, I still have God's acceptance. And that's at the deep center of my being. And so I don't need to defend myself. And so I can let down my defenses. I can say, you know, I was late again. Tell me how that affected you because I care. And I guess I was inconsiderate. Will you please forgive me? That would be loving. So defending ourselves, the pattern of reigning in humility and love. Third, finally, the effect, the result. And that is that reigning in, in humility and love has a way of unmasking the powers of this world and showing them for what they are. How does John put it in John 3? In Jesus, light has come into the world. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see, this world doesn't function on love and humility, it functions on power and prestige. Have you noticed? <laughs> so, thinking of our story, Jesus comes before Pilate as a different kind of king, reigning in humility and love, testifying only to the truth. And it kind of rattles Pilate, doesn't it? And, and you realize as the story progresses that, that Pilate is on trial too. That the searchlight is being shined in his dark places to see what he's really made of. Pilate is, is just, or I'm sorry, Jesus is just standing there weak and, and lowly and, and everyone else's true character is being revealed around him. For all of his, pilot, pa, pilot, or for all of his power, Pilate is shown to be a coward. 
He's not a man of justice. He's a man of expediency. Yet, uh, or rather, Pilate um, himself says three times that Jesus is innocent. And yet, instead of letting him go, first, Pilate lets a guilty man go instead of Jesus. Then second, he punishes Jesus for no reason. And then third, he crucifies Jesus. An irony of ironies, Pilate, the judge, admits that he doesn't know what the truth is, even though the truth is literally standing right in front of him. Then there are the chief priests. They claim to be so holy that they can't enter a Gentile's house. And all the while, they're scheming to put an innocent man to death. They claim to be concerned about Roman interests, but, but they ask for a notorious revolutionary to be released instead of the man that the Romans themselves assured them is no threat to Roman interests. And then they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. But in the next breath, they utter the ultimate blasphemy. We have no king but Caesar, which is actually the bottom line truth. Underneath all their religious piety, they don't really worship God at all. They worship Rome, on whom their power and their prestige depends. You know, we don't have, to, we don't have time to go into it, but there's, there's powerful symbolism here. There's a powerful contrast here between Jesus on the one hand, who shows us how to reign in love and humility, and on the other hand, politics and religion. And Jesus unmasks them both and, and he shines his light on them so we can see them both for what they really are. And if we follow Jesus' example, as we learn to reign in love and humility, our lives as his people will, will have the same effect. They'll have the, the same result shining like light in the darkness. A lamp on a stand showing the truth unmasking and showing things for what they really are and helping those who have eyes to see to see the truth clearly. That's our calling as Jesus' people to reign in love and humility in this world. And Jesus is our king and, and he shows us, he shows the whole world how it's done. That's why we welcome him on this Palm Sunday. Amen.